You're listening to a podcast from Oasis Church Waterloo. To find out more, visit oasiswaterloo.org. And so because of the fall, humanity is under the spell of, is under the boot of, is controlled by the devil. Humanity's in this dark place. So God's got to put in place a rescue plan. So God sends Jesus and Jesus comes to earth, God incarnate on earth. And the way Jesus does this rescue plan is that he says, well, I'm going to buy humanity back from the devil. I'm going to be a ransom. I'm going to be the price paid to the devil in order for humanity to be released from this slavery. So Jesus is swapped for humanity. Jesus gives himself as a ransom and is killed by the devil. Um, and he's, he dies on the cross. Um, and then Jesus uh, is resurrected three days later. And there's a sort of trick built into this story. It's like God's tricking the devil, but then three days later he goes, ta-da, and, and uh, Jesus is alive again. There's this sort of trick built into the middle of ransom theory. That's a really interesting set of things for us to talk about, isn't it? Um, all of these theories interrelate to one another, so they all morph a bit. So ransom theory morphs a bit into something Steve's going to talk about in a couple of weeks called Christus Victor. It morphs a little bit in my mind into some of the moral example theory that Rebecca talked about. They're all, sometimes you, you might have heard people say, that talking about the cross is like looking at different sides of a diamond. You sort of look at slightly different perspectives and if you put them all together you get a rounded view. Now, I think there is some truth in that because I think we can take bits from each of these theories and they help us. I think there's also a sense in which that's not true. There are some completely different concepts in these theories of atonement, some of which, in my opinion, and it's only my opinion, but are better than others. Um, and so we shouldn't just say they're all sort of the same thing, looking at a different angle. They, there are things we can learn from all of them, but they are saying different things, so we should examine them. Um, the ransom theory comes from, um, there are various verses in the Bible which talk about ransom. Jesus talks about ransom, and so we've sort of taken that thought and extrapolated a bit to what happened to Jesus on the cross. The, probably the most famous verse is this one, Mark chapter 10, verse 45. It says, for even the Son of Man, this is Jesus speaking, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. So even Jesus speaks this word ransom, so what does this mean for us? Well, so the, uh, the best picture of this that I've seen in sort of culture that gives you a really good uh, image of what ransom theory is about. Um, did you watch um, The Line of Witch and the Wardrobe, Narnia, um, uh, as a child? I watched back the BBC thing on YouTube, and uh, the production values are awful now. <laughs> as, Aslan is this robot that sort of you can't see his mouth moving and stuff. It's really terrible. Anyway, Narnia is this great um, example of... Um, uh, ransom theory. So in Narnia, there's the four children. So there's Lucy and Susan, Peter and Edmund, and they go through the back of the wardrobe and they're in Narnia. And Edmund ends up um, spending time with the White Witch. And actually, he's sort of slightly deceiving his uh, siblings because he goes off to spend time with the White Witch. And ultimately, Edmund gets captured by the White Witch. And the other kids don't know what to do about this. So they go off to see Aslan. Aslan's the rightful ruler of Narnia. Narnia's under the grip of the White Witch and there's continual winter. And they go off to speak to Aslan to say what we're going to do about this. Aslan goes to see the White Witch, doesn't really get anywhere. And then ultimately Aslan offers himself as a payment for Edmund's release. 
And you know, probably, if you've watched it, that really famous scene where Aslan offers himself as a payment, um, Edmund's released, and then Aslan gets dragged onto this great big um, table, this, uh, this great big stone table, and Aslan's killed by the White Witch and all of the sort of demons that she brings with her. Um, and all hope is lost at that point. The kids walk off, uh, you know, Aslan is dead. All hope is lost. And then the following morning, there's this great big crack, and the kids run back to the table, and the table is split in half, and Aslan's come back to life. And Aslan says this to the kids when he comes back to life. He says, the witch knows the deep magic, but there is a magic deeper still that she has never known. For, the not, for her knowledge only goes back to the dawn of time. In the stillness and the dark before time ever began, there was a different incantation. When a willing victim who has committed no treachery offers his life in a traitor's stead, the stone table will crack and death itself will be denied. I knew of the old incantation, but it has never been put to the test until now. You can see probably that's a just perfect sort of mirror image of ransom theory. Um, the White Witch, the devil, Narnia's under the grip of this, Edmund, his humanity is captured um, by e these evil forces. Aslan in this picture is Jesus. Aslan gives himself as a ransom payment to the White Witch and humanity is released, Edmund is released and ultimately Aslan comes back to life. It's almost the mirror image of ransom theory which is I guess why C.S. Lewis put it into the book. Before we get on to the sort of rights and wrongs of like what makes sense out of this and what doesn't, it struck me as I was reading about these atonement theories, first of all, they're really complicated. It's quite hard to get them to stick in your head. There are lots of them, and they all say slightly different things. And then secondly, I was thinking, the, the atonement and what happens on the cross and Jesus' resurrection, in an instant, in a moment, is trying to sum up the journey and history of humanity over time and humanity's striving to be better and be bigger and be more moral and just is trying to sum up this gross contradiction that we live with where we are obviously good and this is a good world and a good creation but we've also got inclination to do things wrong at times. It's trying to sum up the ultimate purpose of the universe. What are the forces that actually triumph? It's trying to sum up our interaction with that beyond us, with humanity's interaction with God. It's trying to sum up God's deep, long, persevering love for humanity and trying to sum that all up in a moment. And so two things. One, no wonder these theories are a bit complicated. And two, when we try and be too literal about them and reduce them down into really literalistic things, I don't know how we can do that when we're trying to sum up the depth of everything I've just said. When an atonement theory gets to, well, the way this works is Jesus paid a price to the devil, the devil released humanity, Jesus died and rose again three days later, job done. I don't know how we can take all the breadth of what I've just said and reduce it down into something quite so transactional. So that says to me, these theories are metaphor and pictures and human beings' best attempt to try and sum up what's going on. But, it, you know, we're trying to sum up that which is well beyond us, all those things I've just talked about. So I guess as I was reading them, um, all of them actually, and as I was preparing for this, I was thinking the temptation to be too literalistic and say, well, that's the one that I believe and everything about it is probably not the best strategy with this whole series. So you've probably got to take them all and work out you know, what resonates, what doesn't, what's picture, what's not picture, what you know, as you look across all of them together. 
Second thing is, all of these theories are built on human experience. So I'm not going to talk about this one, but there's a whole set of theory called satisfaction theory, which is about restoring honour to God. Honour's been broken because humanity's let God down and we've got to restore honour. That was written by human beings and theorised by human beings in a time when they lived in an honorific culture. You honoured the king, you honoured the queen, you honoured the rulers, you honoured your parents, you honoured your family. So no wonder they transmitted all of that into their understanding of the cross. Life was about honour. So the cross must be about honour. Penal substitution is about justice and holiness and purity. It's written in the Reformation when Martin Luther is railing against the injustices of the Catholic Church and the lack of purity in the Catholic Church and the lack of holiness in his eyes. And then it's written on again by John Calvin, who's a forensic lawyer. So no wonder that one is about the weighing scales of justice. It's written up by a lawyer. Ransom theory is theorised by a group of people who would have understood the concepts of these sort of transactions of buying back and payment and ransom. So no wonder ransom theory's got these, these set of context, context built into them. I guess as we come to our understanding of the cross, interesting question for us is, what of our culture are we transporting into our understanding? And is that helpful and, or is it unhelpful? You know, we should analyse that. We're probably dragging post-modernity into the way we understand the cross. Is that a good thing? Bad thing, I don't know, but we should think about it. So these, these cultures, particularly the early church, but Old Testament cultures well before that, would have understood the concept of um, ransom. I'm just going to find you a quote from Numbers. Here you go. This is Numbers, so this is not the early church. This is the Old Testament, but here's just one. There are hundreds of them, um, readings about transaction and ransom and buying back and payment. Here you go. Here's one. Numbers chapter 18. Everything in Israel that is devoted to the Lord is yours. The first offspring of every womb, both human and animal, that is offered to the Lord is yours. But you must redeem every firstborn son, every firstborn male of unclean animals. When they're a month old, you must redeem them. You must pay a ransom for them. At the redemption price of five shekels of silver, according to sanctuary shekel, which weighs 20 gera. And you can find hundreds of those across the Old Testament. Um, people would have understand, understood these concepts of ransom. So, for me, no wonder Jesus uses a bit of that language sometimes when he says the thing in Mark 45, so I've come to give my life as a ransom for many. It was using language that people probably would have understood to make sense of this concept, but let's not take that too literally, in my opinion. So, what can we learn? Well, first thing is... Um, Oh, I had a picture of Aslan, I've missed that. Anyway, <laughs> first thing is, um, I think that picture of um, sacrifice in the middle of this ransom theory is quite a powerful one. Right? If you watch Narnia, it's quite a sad moment. It's quite a powerful moment when Aslan says, take me instead of him. Like, that's a profoundly powerful moment, isn't it? And we read that across into lots of cultural thing, that's in literature, it's in films, that's quite a profound moment. For me, that's the read across into moral example theory, actually. That moment of sacrifice is this really powerful moment. And probably to persecuted communities who felt under the boot of um, evil, evil forces and the devil, probably that's a really profoundly important thing. You know, even God says, I will stand in your place. I, you know, take me, not them. Like, that's probably quite a powerful concept if you're sitting in a persecuted community. 
Um, I think we trans translate that across into lots of things in society. That moment of saying, I'm going to walk this way even if it means it's going to hurt. Um, I'm going to walk this way because it's the right thing to do. You know, we read that all over the place. You know, here's Nelson Mandela. So this is before his trial in Pretoria. Um, I think he's been in prison for a number of years, but about to be sentenced to Robin Island for many, many more years. And this is the final bit of his speech when he stands up in court. And he says, during my lifetime, I've dedicated myself to this struggle of the African people. I've fought against white domination. I've fought against black domination. I've cherished the ideal of a democratic and free society in which all persons live together in harmony and with equal opportunities. It's an ideal which I hope to achieve and live for, but if needs be, it's an ideal for which I am prepared to die. That sense of being prepared to go that far is quite a powerful thought, I think, in the middle of this ransom theory. Second thing I would say is, the, I think this is taken too far in ransom theory, but like some of that imagery, that bit pictorial stuff around feeling under the boot of the devil, feeling in control, being controlled by evil around you, probably is the people writing this theory trying to sum up that contradiction of like, we are obviously good, but there's also some times when we step away from the nature of God, when things don't go right, when we step into our evil inclinations. I think it's taken slightly too far in ransom theory, but it's an interesting picture for us to um, get our heads around as it tries to grapple with that concept. And here's why I think it's taken too far. So in ransom theory, this says this is all to do with the fall. This is all to do with there was the perfect Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve were in it, they got um, tempted by the serpent, they ate the fruit, they ended up kicked out of the Garden of Eden, and at that point, all of humanity was under the grip of evil, was under the grip of the devil. Now, if you're going to understand ransom theory, you're probably going to have to decide what you think about that Genesis stuff, that um, stuff in the Garden of Eden. Um, when I was talking to Steve, I'm just asking him how he would have preferred for this. He, he talked talk, talk to me about, he had a chat with um, one of the ex-chief rabbis, Jonathan Sachs. Jonathan Sachs said to him, the trouble with you Christians is, first of all, you nick our book. Secondly, none of you understand Hebrew. And then you start trying to tell us what it means. Um, so a good place to start for thinking about what those stories mean in Genesis is probably what the Jewish people think about those stories. Um, so I did a bit of um, thinking and research into what Jewish people think about these stories. Well, first thing is that Jewish people have got lots of different words for sin, and we um, just transcribe all of those into one word, sin, in English, and yet Jewish people have got a much broader concept of what sin means, and they don't mean the same thing as us often. So first of all, there are three different things. One, they talk about errors, mistakes, which are unintentional, and we just translate that as sin. Secondly, they talk about sort of more active rebellion, but when I'm doing things to be slightly rebellious, to get one back on you type thing, and we just translate that as sin. Thirdly, they talk about transgressions, things that are a bit more intentional, but everything from you know, a white lie type transgression to slightly more serious things. But they don't write that off as, therefore humanity is intrinsically evil and in the spell of the devil. They just seem to live a bit more happily with humanity has got this mixed thing going on. It's good, it's obviously good, but it also has got this sense that sometimes it steps away from that. And there's this concept called Yetzirah, I probably pronounced that terribly, but Yetzirah is what um, Jewish people call the evil inclination. There you go, I've got a picture of that with two concepts, Yetzirah and Yetzirah Hatov. Um, Yetzirah is this concept that we've sometimes got 
evil inclinations. We've sometimes got an inclination to step away from the nature of God. And so they write, the, or lots of Jews, I'm sure Jews have loads of different opinions about this, but there is a majority view in Judaism that says the story of Adam and Eve is not necessarily this story of a fall from perfection to imperfection. They say it's a story of growing up. Um, humanity in the Garden of Eden was in this childlike state. It was completely dependent on God. It was in a really childlike state, didn't know right and wrong, didn't know about knowledge, didn't know about the fruit of it. We can't blame humanity for doing that. It was humanity maturing. In one sense, it was actually a good thing. Humanity matured. It's about a loss of innocence and humanity stepping up to moral accountability. They actually talk about it almost as if it's a good thing, not a bad thing. This is humanity growing up into maturity and having moral accountability. And then they say, well, that's not the end of the story either. Like we've grown up into adolescence, our job is to now grow up into adulthood where we live with that moral accountability but we do good with it and we try and drop our ego in the midst of that and we try and head for selflessness, not selfishness. But they sort of live with this concept that there is a contradiction built into humanity and creation which is this yetzda hatov and yetzda hara. And, but they say, we're not trying to go backwards to the Garden of Eden. We're not trying to go backwards to our childish state. We're trying to go forwards to real adulthood. And so if you write the story of the fall, as we'd call it in, uh, and sometimes, up like that, you don't actually quite need ransom theory to do what it's trying to do. You don't need God to turn up and say, well, a payment must be paid to the devil in order to release humanity from the bondage of evil, which is oppressing them. You actually... Your atonement theory would probably be about something slightly different if you looked at it like that. Jews don't go for original sin and the fall in quite the way we do. A, a podcast I listened to was saying, well, first of all, we think humanity is made in the image of God. You know, Kessler read a little bit of that. Well, if we say humanity is imperfect and under the grip of slavery of the devil and sinful and impact, you know, all those sorts of things, what are we saying about God? And that, like, if you go too far down that road, what are you saying about God. So that's a Jewish understanding. I don't think you quite need this sort of transaction that ransom theory does in the middle of it. Second thing is, in ransom theory, God is subservient to the devil, or at least subservient to the need to pay the devil a price for humanity to be released. That's a weird concept for us, isn't it? I also think it's just far too binary. I, I don't think the world went like this. Perfect Garden of Eden, under the grip of sin, Jesus turned up, did some sort of transaction back to, you know, perfect world again. You know, I don't think that's how humanity has grown. It's far too linear and binary. Like, my view is when you look across humanity and the cosmos and the, and, and the world we live in, it's always been good. We've, our job is to call out what has always been true. Humanity has always been on this journey of trying to pull itself out of its context and say, how do we be bigger and better and grow up into real adulthood? We've been through childhood, we're into adolescence, how do we grow up into real adulthood? Like the stories in the Old Testament are stories of people and tribes of people saying, how do we be more just? How do we step out of the gross violence that goes on around us and be more just, look more like the character of God? Goodness was always out there for us to find. And so I don't think it goes perfect, imperfect, Jesus, happy days were liberated against. Humanity has always been grappling with this stuff to try and get its head above the parapet and live better. The moral arc of the universe is long, but it bends towards justice. That has always 
been true. So you could ask me, well, why do you need Jesus at all? Which I'll come back to in a minute. But um, here's just a little picture. This is um, a board in a train station in Mumbai in India. So I spent a couple of years living in Mumbai. Um, and so I lived in a place called Borovali, which is at the top of the island in Mumbai. So Bombay is, Mumbai is this sort of long island and Borovali is at the top. And the office, was the Oasis office that I worked in, was sort of halfway down at the island. And so each morning you had to go and catch the train. And so on my first day, I went down to Borovali train station. I you know, could speak no Hindi or Marathi or read any of the words. Or so turned up at Borovali train station. You've never seen so many people in one place in all your life. You stood on the platform, and you were 10, 15 deep on the platform. And trains would come in to the train station, doors open. And whilst they're still moving, people just bundle you into this train. And you just get wedged into this tiny little space on the train in Mumbai. But before you could do any of that, you had to work out where you were going and which train you were catching. And to be honest, that was the most information you got on the station. So the train was C0117F01. You know, that was supposed to describe what you were doing. And so first day, no idea. Just had to get on the train and see where it took me. Second day, I realised that, the, you see where it says 01 on the right-hand side, those were counting down. It started at 05 and then 04 and then 3 and then 2 and then 1. And I worked out that that was, you know, minutes until the train arrived. It didn't seem to have much relation to the 117 in the middle, but, you know, I could tell that a train was coming. So second day, I had a bit more of a clue. Third day, I realised that the 117 was the time the train was supposed to come didn't mean that it did come then. The 0, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5 on the right-hand side was more helpful. Third day, I realised that the F was either an F or an S. There was only two letters, so that must be fast or slow train. So vaguely helpful. And then eventually I realised that on the left-hand side, those letters were the letter that told you where you were going. Sometimes it was the letter of the place you were going to. Sometimes it was another letter, um, which is a bit of a code for the place you were going to. So I worked out ultimately that this train was going to Churchgate. It was supposed to come at 1.17. It was a fast train, so because it was going to Churchgate, you could work out which, which stations it didn't stop at, and that it was coming in one minute. The truth was out there. On day one, that train was going to Churchgate, was coming at 1.17, was a fast train, and was coming in one minute, but I didn't understand any of that. And it took me you know, however many weeks to slowly, slowly learn what the truth was that was out there. <laughs> like, all of that stuff was true. I think humanity's experience of God has always been that. We've been calling out what's always been true. So trying to write this up as this really binary, good, bad, good again, I just think is a, doesn't work for me personally. We've got to call out what's always been true. Third thing, and I won't talk about this for too long, but in this ransom theory, God, first of all, is a debtor to the devil. And then secondly, God is a deceiver of the devil. Um, now, that's a funny conceptualization to put around God too, isn't it? So that's worth having a think about. So why is any of this important? Why are any of these atonement theories important? In one sense, there could just be some random theology that you know people like writing books about, but it doesn't help much. But I think our atonement theology, as complicated as it is though, drives us to what is our view of humanity? Do we feel that humanity is or could be or sometimes is under the boot of the devil? You know, is that what we really think? And if that's what we think, how does that drive how we view one another? It drives our view of God. 
Now, what do we think God's role in this? Is God's role sometimes subservient to evil? Is, that, is God's role to pay, you know, do this transactional stuff on our behalf? It drives our view of who we think God is. And thirdly, I think it drives our view of what we think our role is. Has God done this transactional salvation for us all? It's all fine, we're all liberated now. We may as well just sit it out until we die. Or is our job to slowly drag ourselves out of our context and into more justice, more liberation, more love, more forgiveness? Like drives what we think our job together is too in relation to God. So here's my version of atonement, which is going to radically differ from um, <laughs> from uh, ransom theory now. I think, as I've said really with that picture, the truth has always been out there. The good God of the world, Kasua read that story right at the beginning of Genesis. God said, it is good. It has always been good. It's been humanity's job to lift its horizons, to lift its head above the parapet and explore what being good really, really looked like. I think Jesus came to be this great guide and example to us. If you take that Jewish version of Adam and Eve and the fall, they said, we need a guide. We need a guide to guide us forwards to, to, to God, to look more like God. Jesus came to be this great example to us, but Jesus came to be a pretty definitive great example. Jesus' death and resurrection was saying, these power, you can walk this way, it is okay. This stuff is the stuff that really triumphs. This stuff, love and forgiveness and compassion and sacrificial love is the stuff that really wins out at the end. So Jesus is an example, but this really definitive example right in the middle of history. And all of history pivots on that point. All of history says this stuff is the stuff that makes the world really work. This is the stuff that is the way we're supposed to live together. And so it's fundamental, fundamentally important to us. So I think our job is to call out hope. I think if you get too stuck in this ransom theory stuff, we're in danger of getting a bit trapped on um, all the terrible stuff we do and how awful humanity is and we could be under the foot of the devil and we end up in that sort of a place. And yet our job is to call out the hope that has always been. We're supposed to call out goodness. We're supposed to encourage one another into adulthood out of childishness into adolescence and then beyond that into adultness that lives with that lack of innocence and lives with knowledge but says let's do it without ego let's do it in a selfless way one of the things you could say though is well that doesn't take sin very seriously all you're doing is just acknowledging the good stuff i think it is also our job though to acknowledge when stuff doesn't go the way it's supposed to if you take those jewish concepts sin is its own punishment Sin, when we get stuff wrong, when we don't act in accordance with God, when we act out of line with God, it's painful for us and it's painful for others around us. We should acknowledge that stuff and talk about how we could do life better. They hurt us and others. But I don't think we should stop there. We shouldn't focus on the bad stuff. We shouldn't get stuck there. We should acknowledge that stuff and then say, right, let's call out goodness and hope in the world around us. Our job is to call out goodness and hope. Steve, when he was talking to me about this topic, said, we're supposed to be peddlers of hope in the world, not people that get stuck in that place of talking about what's wrong. And I think that's what great leaders do. That's what great people do. They acknowledge what's wrong, but then they talk about goodness. And that's the inspiration for humanity to lift its uh, mindset forward. Let me pray for us all before we sing this last song. I invite you to stand. This week, may you experience the God who guides you forward into a greater understanding of who God is and who you are.
This week, may you experience him who sits with us when it's hard. May you experience her who rejoices with us when it's good. And may you experience them who always, always calls out hope.